Welcome to the Shalom Hartman Institute podcast. I'm Alan Abbey. The Hartman Institute is a center of transformative thinking and teaching. We address the major challenges facing the Jewish people and elevate the quality of Jewish life in Israel and around the world. Now is the time to consider attending a study retreat with us this summer. Our programs for community leaders and rabbis have been running for decades. For details on seminars in Israel and North America, go to hartman.org.il. And now, Dr. Yehuda Kurtzer, President of the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. His lecture is titled, Zionism, the Question of Sovereignty. So my task here is uh, to, to continue our uh, conversation this morning on the topic of sovereignty uh, and thinking in terms of the potentiality of sovereignty. What opportunities does sovereignty create? Um, and I'm going to do that. I don't know the extent to which this will uh, dovetail with Micha's presentation, although based on what my, his under, the way I understood his presentation of Exodus, I think we'll find some overlaps with some of the Talmudic texts that I'm going to present. Um, but most of what I want to do is do a little of problematizing. Why this problem, why sovereignty is such a vexing question uh, for Jewish history and for Jewish identity, and to look at a number of texts in that direction, and hopefully by the end offer a little bit of a direction or an opening towards how we're starting to think about this. I want to start, though, off text, and I'm not going to take too long on this, um, but I do want to just, um, I don't know what you have been doing in your group to some degree, and I don't know where there are continue to be sticking points or questions that are percolating or rattling around in your head. I hope to some degree the teaching that has taken place so far has been unsettling. Um, you know, when if the, if the only Torah that you learn reaffirms your existing choices, um, well, then it's just a, it's like a luxury item. Right? Whereas the real Torah that we want to be teaching is the Torah of provocation that makes us question and grow. So if, you, if anyone has any questions that they're thinking about from any of the emerging sessions, um, something that they're stuck with, I wanted to just create a few minutes to put those on the table, and I'm not going to actually answer them. It's just a useful way for me to assess what people are thinking about and to, in some ways, take the temperature of the room in that regard. So anything that has stuck out for you from a previous session, something you're working through, yes, let's see. So as you know, for the topic this morning is to, to talk about the work of the question of sovereignty. Um, and, uh, and I want to spend most of our time pro you know, problematizing that and think of it in the context <coughs> of the lived Jewish experience. Um, my own, uh, just as a note of my own background, uh, my own personal upbringing uh, in a modern Orthodox household, and prime, I think one of the main features of my identity as a teenager was through affiliating with a religious Zionist youth group uh, called B'nai Akiva. In North America, B'nai Akiva was just that, a religious Zionist youth group. In Israel, is actually implicated in uh, much more connected to the political spectrum. Uh, B'nai Akiva, at least in the 70s and 80s, was uh, connected to the political party, the Mafdal, the National Religious Party, um, which itself has had an interesting journey in the past 25, 30 years from the center to the right. And whether it's because the society moved or because religious Zionism moved, Bnei Akiva and the Mafdal are now much more identified with the settler party than they may have been in the 1970s and 80s. Um, what the, the, the ideology that governs Bnei Akiva and that governs religious Zionism is very straightforward and, to my mind, still extremely compelling, even if the what, what challenges us with that ideology is how it gets played out in practice. The ideology of Bnei Akiva is very simply, Am Yisrael, the Eretz Yisrael, Al Pitarat Yisrael, the people of Israel in the land of Israel living according to the precepts of the Torah of Israel. Now you can imagine and understand the ways in which that uh, interfaces with a particular political ideology with respect to who, who defines the people, right? When you say Am, do you mean people or do you mean nation? With respect to land, do you mean the biblical parameters of the land of Israel, or do you mean the land of Israel as it's defined by its government? And the Torah of Israel, too, has, in some cases, a very specific valence. What constitutes, you know, should the Torah be the constitution of Israel? So you see the way in which an ideology like that can map very effectively onto the political landscape. And one of the questions I think that we're asking is, can we still hold on to and reaffirm that kind of ideology if we question all of the different categories that are present in the ideology? 
In other words, questioning what the boundaries are of the people, questioning what literally and metaphorically are the boundaries of the land, and questioning what are the values and ethical systems that comprise a Torah that would enable us to live in compatibility with an ideology like that one. Um, and that has been my own personal journey and struggle with this, uh, walking, you know, moving away from that ideology, perhaps because of the way it maps politically. I don't want to be left in the lurch of an idea of, of lacking an ideology with which to, to relate to Israel, both as a real and also ultimately a visionary possibility. Another metaphor we might use to think about this is the metaphor of the language of Hatikva, which articulates what at one point was the basic vision of Zionism, right? What's the basic vision of what Hatikva describes in terms of the desire? What is it? What's the phrase? Liot am right? To live as a free people in our country, right? Where on some level there's something very reassuring about that baseline sense of hope, like this is what we're aiming for. On the other hand, what happens when the state falls short of the expectations that we have, right? Or, put differently, is living and being left alone sufficient to hold together a vision of what the Israel Project is all about? Right, in the formulation, this is um, the extreme version of this was articulated by the, political the late political philosopher Yishayahu Leibowitz, who was kind of the thorn on the, on the side of the Israeli political establishment for his entire life. His sister was Nechama Leibowitz, who was a very accomplished biblical commentator. It's kind of an interesting family. Um, and he was, I don't remember what exactly his field was. I think maybe he was a, he was a physicist. Um, but he wrote a whole set of political philo philosophical treatises and his, his, he stood most radically on the anti-ideology side of we're, we're just trying to live as, you know, to be left alone, right? Um, and at, at a certain point, there's something that, can, that remains compelling about that, but that can't quite be enough. When we talk about all of the challenges to, um, <clears throat> for both Israeli and diaspora Jews in terms of relating to Israel, generational change is calling into question the long-term vitality of a message that's simply about survival, right, or simply about being left alone, especially with the increased um, vitality of a language of universalism, right? If you buy into a universalism, why be left alone, right, and why merely have your own space? Somehow the, the language of a vision of sovereignty has to add layers of texture and, and meaningful ideology to that just-be-left-alone-ness of what sometimes Zionism takes as its, as its message. Um, <clears throat> another step in this process is a Zionism articulated by Amos Oz in the early 1980s in a book he called In the Land of Israel. Um, in Hebrew, it was Pavisham Be'eretz Israel, where Amos Oz literally travels around the country and talks to people. It would be a wonderful book for him to replicate if he was able to do it again 30 years later. And he, talk, he goes out to, a, to, um, to, the, to Gush Emunim and talks to a bunch of settlers, and he sits and talks with Israeli Arabs, and he writes these as a chronicle. Has anyone, anyone read this book? It's a worthwhile read in English, still 30 years later. And one of the, the Zionism that he articulate, articulates in the context of this book, um, he channels from um, the, the philosopher George Steiner, and he talks about how essentially all of the mechanics of the state, things like the flag and the anthem, all of these pieces of Zionism and nationalism that are often talked of with such, that are so valorized. He says for the Jewish people to be using the tools and instruments of nationalism is equivalent to being an old man in a kindergarten. Right? He says in, in, the, in the scope of Jewish values and Jewish tradition, um, <clears throat> all of this new nationalism stuff, like it's 150 years old in total. He calls it goyim nachas, right? the stuff of the goyim. Right? And fundamentally, we, but what, we, what we've learned, based, he's, you know, he talks about the Jew was like the, the jester on the world stage, mocked, laughed at, sometimes slaughtered. He said, so we learned, even though we, you know, we kind of condescend to these tools of nationalism, that we'll abide by them because that's what the children in the, other, in the kindergarten do. But are we supposed to ultimately valorize the mechanics of state as, as like something to aspire for? No. Ultimately, we're about something bigger. Now, that speaks to me very directly, and yet, it also is not quite enough. Because if the mechanics of state are also creating challenges by which the state is doing things we don't like, or if the state is falling short of our expectations, 
or just kind of on a human level, how long can an old man stay in a kindergarten? Right? Do we just abide by that as the system? Is sovereignty merely a technique of survival? Right? And are the instruments of nationalism in a state only there for that purpose? And I think one of the questions that we're trying to ask is what is the potential, what is the potential value of sovereignty to, to add to the Jewish narrative that somehow these messages don't quite get us to? Um, here's, though, the real problem. Right? If that situates our question, here's the real problem. The attempt to look for sources in the Jewish tradition that talk about sovereignty and its potential is really problematic for one basic historical reason. In total, from the Bible to now, there's been about 260 years, 300 maybe years of sovereignty, and most of it was very much looked down on in Jewish experience as being a failed experiment. So in the scheme of things, right, what are the, I can identify, I think, three periods of Jewish sovereignty, including 1948 to the present. What are the first two? Right, the Davidic rule is probably the first. And the Davidic rule was both so long ago and so mythical that all of Jewish liturgy has routed its nationalistic dreams through the Davidic line. So in the whole liturgy is constructed around the myth of a restoration of the Davidic kingdom. It also kind of implies that it didn't last very long, and it probably wasn't as good as they said. <laughs> right? That, but that's how a myth comes about, right? If only, right? if only we remembered how good it was under the Davidic line. And why did the Davidic line not continue? People must have been not that happy during the Davidic line. So there becomes this myth emerges about how great it was under the rule of David and Solomon. It lasts for some short period of time, culminates in destruction. The second period of sovereignty in Jewish history? Maybe. I was thinking more of the Hasmoneans, right, the Maccabees, right, where, who institute a period of Seth rule for about 100 years, so 163 B.C. to about 63 or so B.C., um, a 100-year rule that is marked by so much infighting between the Hasmonean kings um, that even though the boundaries of the land of Israel were never larger in Jewish history than they were under one of the Hasmonean kings, Alexander Janaeus, who not only conquered all the surrounding territories, but according to um, some of the ancient historians, actually forcibly circumcised some of the local populations in order to increase the boundaries. In other words, one of the places in which nationalism forces the issue of peoplehood. Right? How do I, if I conquer these people, I'm not merely going to rule them, but I'm going to bring them in under the umbrella of Jewish participation by marking them physically as member of our people. Um, it's such a dramatic increase of the population and of the, of the boundaries. At the same time, it is looked down upon in Jewish history in a narrative as a terrible period in Jewish history. So much, the rabbis so much dislike the Hasmoneans and the, the nationalism that they project that in their core myth of Hanukkah, the, 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 the Hasmoneans and the monarchy doesn't appear. The core myth of Hanukkah becomes about God restoring the light in the temple and not about the military victory over the Hasmoneans. Right, so the rabbis don't particularly like the, the Hasmoneans, and there are a number of other cases of the rabbis describing episodes that take place in this infighting between the Hasmonean brothers. And the, the, the monarchy falls apart so badly that the two brothers, one of the brothers who are fighting for the kingdom in the year 63 BCE, is willing to make an alliance with the Romans in order to defeat his brother. And making an alliance with the Romans is like, um, there's no such thing as an alliance with the Romans. There's obedience to the Romans. So he, his partnership with the Roman in, invites Pompey to march in Jerusalem in 63, and that's the end of Jewish sovereignty. And the sovereignty story roughly ends until 1948. So the notion that we should be able to find meaningful sources within our tradition that think about this um, or that describe periods of sovereignty to which we can aspire is really complicated. It's really challenging. It's not that much there. In fact, it's so deeply rooted in, um, <coughs> in Jewish consciousness that our first story, which is the biblical story, ends without sovereignty. It's, it's like the worst version of a Hollywood movie, right? If you have the people come out of Egypt and go through all these miracles, 
and they're now at the precipice of the land of Israel, the way the book should end is with the entry to the land of Israel and the establishment of a monarchy or the establishment of sovereignty with divine license. And of course, the book ends with on them on the precipice of the land of Israel, as if to suggest, I think very deliberately and mythically, that this story propels us towards sovereignty, but that we don't actually have the mythic language to understand what sovereignty looks like. In fact, so much of the rest of the biblical story becomes failures of the various attempts to create a sovereign state. So on one hand, we have this challenge of the absence of sources in order to, as our, as our precedent, as our template. But the second problem is that the sources we do have tend to project a messianic transformation of the world that, at least in my case, makes me a little queasy. Right? A mess the messianic transformations which involve the destruction of the known world, a war between Gog and Magog, right? uh, an upheaval of the natural order of the world, and most problematically, I think for most of us, an upheaval of the very diaspora existence that most of us live. So a model of sovereignty is, we're left wanting for a model of sovereignty that's both from within our values tradition and one that um, doesn't entail the rejection of everything that we know. Um, so I guess the question that we want to ask today, and I want to I now take that, those questions and put them into sources so we see the extent to which this is routed through just Jewish traditional language and through Jewish traditional sources, and then to try to explore at the end a little bit of what, what potential we kind of come, have coming out of this towards what a Jewish public space looks like and what a Jewish public discourse looks like. Well, it's certainly a valid stance for one, one position for the Israeli narrative is we want to just be like every other people and we want to survive that would call into question the ongoing language the Jewish community uses about continuity. Right? Because what the best way to survive is to assimilate. Right? We think we can like to physically survive, the best means of survival is through assimilation. And yet Jewish history and Jewish identity demands that we actually are trying to preserve some sense of difference even as we assimilate. So if if that was the issue, then people wouldn't be concerned about the fact that, you know, there are increasing numbers of Israelis who leave Israel, right, and go to other parts of the world in order to live, right? Like, do, does the Italian community in Italy, to use, the, to use that metaphor, worry about the, you know, about your deem from Italy, or about the creation of a little Italy in virtually every major city around the world, right, or some, or a cultural, where, where it becomes merely about the expression of culture through superficial means, rather than through, you know, an independently constructed identity. I, I mean, I, say, I see it through the question, I go back to this, this question of the Goyim Nachas, of like, wait, really what we wanted was simply the architecture of a state? Or to be, you know, and this is the classic question, a state like any other state, a nation like any other nation, or a special nation, right? That's the, that is the kind of classic existential question that governs this whole enterprise. To what extent do we want to be just like everyone else, and to, uh, to what extent do we want to be different? And every time it seems that we hover towards one, we kind of grasp at the other, as if we want to live with this dissonance long term, to be able to hold on to these two things simultaneously. So I think you're right, as on a human level, there is a little bit of a desire to say, why do we pull out our hair about this struggle of, for, for cultural separation when we're just like everybody else? And at the same time, we want to be able to say, of course, there's something purposeful about this thing that we're doing that makes us not just like everyone else. Because then, if we're just like everyone else, you know, it doesn't, the state of Israel doesn't have to be here. It could be somewhere else, right? It doesn't have to be a... You know, a the challenge, though, at the same time, is that what you're basically saying is that if Jewish history proceeds from the past all the way to the present, and then the, the, the world introduces the notion of the nation-state, that somehow all of this stuff from the past has to get routed into this framework in order for it to continue to be vital. Right? The alternative is you say, we will speak in that language of the Goyim Nachas, whereas we know that fundamentally we're trying to do something different. Right, and it's an untested model in Jewish history. And that's where this whole question comes from, right, of what does a, Jew, a particular Jewish nation-state look like? I mean, that's a question of sovereignty. And, and without the data from the Jewish past in order to figure that out, we can either jettison <coughs> the Jewish stuff and embrace the model of the nation-state or figure out a way that I agree with you has to beyond, go beyond Goyim Nachas. It can't just be that. You have to find a way to route that value, Jewish values conversation into the language of the nation state in order to make it work. I want to 
I want to route this question through some classical texts. Um, you, I know you read some biblical texts, and I wanted to tease out the increased complexity in Jewish history because of the absence of a sovereignty narrative of what it has translated into in terms of how Jews have thought about the exercise of power um, within Jewish history. The classical problem in, in Deuteronomy of, about what nationalism and sovereignty look like is articulated um, by the verse, the worst punishment that God imagines for the people of Israel is not actually being directly punished. It's, you know, because if you punish somebody, you're still in a relationship with them. It's what happens if God gets so angry with the people of Israel that God withdraws from the people of Israel and hides the divine face. So at some point, I think it's the 11th chapter of Deuteronomy, God says, I will surely hide my face on that day. Anochi haster astir panai bayomahu, in the very words of haster astir, is the term is the is the word it, it, later biblical writers find the word Esther and write the midrash right the book of Esther is an internal biblical midrash on that very verse and trying to explore what it looks like to have a period of divine hiding and how do they manifest in the text the divine hiding in the book of Esther how does God appear in the book of Esther right it's the one biblical book in which God's name is not mentioned the whole book is a metaphorical rendering of this basic problem of what it looks like if God takes God's presence out of the world. What are you, what are you subject to do? And what is the Jewish policy of survival as articulated by the book of Esther? How did you survive according to the book of Esther? Pimp Esther. Hmm? Pimp Esther. Right. Esther. Esther. Right. Pimp Esther. Right. Well, one second, before we get to that, right, ultimately, the first step that happens is what does Esther have to do to her identity? She suppresses her own identity, so she loses her, her means of self-definition. There's no notion in that story that Jews look different than others, because if Jews look different, she's not able to hide her identity. Um, in fact, although there's this very strong Jewish self-perception throughout history that we look different, it's very rarely, until really the 1930s, it's very rarely attested by non-Jewish sources that Jews look different. They just tend to act different. They do different things that make them act, they make them separate. So the Book of Esther doesn't imagine that Jews are intrinsically different even though they're living in a diaspora in Persia. So she hides her identity, she sleeps her way to the top, right? And in the moment of getting to the top, she gets the king drunk, and then only in that moment reveals her identity and describes to the king that his, what he perceived as the enemy was actually not the enemy. His enemy is actually his advisor rather than her. Right? And then, what's the fantasy at the end of the Book of Esther? We could just get washed over in the course of celebrations? Not just triumph. It's a, it's a bloody revenge fantasy. Right? The end of the book culminates with, it's not just that, it's, and it's not, what, what's bizarre about the book is that it would make sense if there had been a massacre. But it's because they planned a massacre, the Jews massacre their neighbors. Right? It becomes the ultimate revenge fantasy, which leaves, at the end of the story, Mordechai triumphing and becoming the, the advisor to the king. It's the place at which the Book of Esther becomes not just a midrash on the Book of Deuteronomy, but a midrash also on the Book of Exodus and the rise of Joseph to power as the second to the king. There's a lot going on in that book. Right? This becomes the paradigm for a particular kind of Jewish diaspora foreign policy, which maps actually very effectively, I think, in a subtle way, to the way that we Jews in diaspora think about how we exercise political power. Or in our most cynical states, how we think we exercise political power is by entering and manipulating the existing power structures and playing this dance between insiders and outsiders. Right? This becomes a kind of stance that the Jews in the land of Israel who write the book of Esther, this is, this is their means of mocking their diaspora brethren. Right? As opposed to coming back to the land of Israel and building a sovereign state and ruling transparently, look, our friends over in the diaspora are doing it by means of sexual manipulation, alcohol, hiding their identity. Right? This, is be this becomes a paradigm, a mocking paradigm for what political the exercise of political power in diaspora looks like. And it maps very well into how the rabbis then think of their own role in this context. So the first text I'm going to have you look at. The rabbis are going to describe a situation in which they take, there's a conversation that transpires in Rome. So it's a comparable setup 
of asking this question of the exercise of power in a foreign place. Right? In the rabbi's version of the story, uh, throughout their narratives, Rome is the dominant imperial other. Right? And when stories involve going to Rome, it oftentimes involves essentially going to the seat of power. And Rome mythically stands in not just for the current imperial power, but for the dominant other throughout Jewish history. Right? There, in the rabbi's imagination, there are, there are monarchies that come along that represent you know, the divine will as exercised against the Jewish people. And so that's the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, and ultimately the Romans. And the notion of the rabbis traveling to the heart of Rome is literally and metaphorically going into the belly of the beast. So this story imagines rabbis going to Rome. The rabbi who starts the story, Rabbi Matthew ben Cherish, is the only rabbi in the rabbinic corpus who is imagined as actually living in Rome, which raises all sorts of interesting questions. What is he doing there? If rabbis are a network of people who are trained under the same leaders and who teach each other and study with each other, what would a rabbi be doing in Rome? Nevertheless, it's an, still an unanswered question, so, but um, the text starts as follows. Rabbi Matthew ben Cheresh once asked Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai in Rome. Now this is going to be a little bit of a weird text, so stay with me. Wherefrom do we know that the blood of reptiles is unclean? So he asks him the most arcane of questions, right? If you squish a reptile and its blood comes out, does, the, does that blood constitute an unclean liquid? Or because it's an unclean animal, is there some kind of double negative that might make the blood irrelevant? Right? This is what rabbis do. This is the kinds of questions they ask, right? Rabbi, Yochanan, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai answers, because it is written, and these are they that are unclean. Now, what does he do? One of the techniques for rabbinic exegesis of the biblical corpus will be, if you find a section of the Bible that has redundant terminology, it says something twice, ah, the Bible can't be teaching you something redundant, right? Because if it's the word of God, why would it repeat itself, right? If each word has significance. So if there's a redundancy, we extrapolate that that redundancy must apply to another verse that it hasn't specifically told us, or it applies to another law that it hasn't specifically told us. So he acknowledges that in Leviticus, when talking about reptiles, it uses the phrase, and these are they that are unclean twice. The first refers to the reptiles themselves, and the second, according to Mario Chai, refers to the blood. Is he right? Who knows? Is it plausible? Sure. Right? It's a, t it's a rabbinic teaching meant to solve an arcane problem that has no ramifications. And as we'll see in the story, the entire halachic prompt here, the entire legal question, is a means of getting at the actual story that they want to tell. But they place it in the familiar legal context of their discussions, even though what they're really trying to do is introduce this narrative of how they of, uh, that, that'll come next. Okay, so far? Okay. Um, his disciples then mock him, and they say to him, the son of Yochai has grown wise. Look how smart you are. How did you know that? How impressive. And he says, actually, this is a teaching prepared in the mouth of Rabbi Elazar, son of Rabbi Yossi. I learned this from my colleague, Rabbi Lazar ben Rabbi Yossi, and with the worst segue ever, they now are going to tell us when it was that they learned this story, which proves that they didn't really need this whole frame, but they don't just start stories. So they're telling us, you know, we're really talking, they create this legal framework to introduce a story that they just wanted to introduce to begin with. And here's the, the core of what we're going to do. For the government had once issued a decree that Jews might not keep the, or should not rather, keep the Sabbath, circumcise their children, and that they should have intercourse with menstruant women. So here's the decree that comes from Rome. Let's try to unpack this for a moment. The government issues a decree that Jews cannot do three things. Right? They cannot keep the Sabbath, they can't circumcise their children, right? And that they should have intercourse with menstruant women uh, when they should, by law, be separated from their wives during their periods. Okay, so this is the decree that comes from Rome. What do you make of these particular three laws? Right, assuming this is a mythical, metaphorical story, what are the rabbis trying to get at by introducing these three laws as the, as the laws that Rome would be perpetuating? Circ and same with circumcision, and same with uh, abstention of sex menstrual women. There's a fourth that I would put on here that would help us. What this does is it actually... This is Jewish self-identity of the things that makes us different from others. In classical sources, when non-Jewish writers wrote about Jews and their practices, they identified Shabbat. Jews have this strange thing where they act lazy, or one day a week they don't work. They identified circumcision. Jews mutilate their genitalia, it says in ancient sources. 
they don't say anything about sex with menstrual women because presumably they're not in Jewish bedrooms. Right? They identify a third culturally distinctive phenomenon that Jews do in antiquity, which is they don't eat pig. Hmm? And it's specifically not eating pig because it's bizarre to everyone else in the ancient world. So for some reason, this is the rabbinic internal version of what we think separates us from them. It's circumcision, it's Shabbat, and it's, um, and it's the laws of family purity. So it maps partially onto the, self on the perception of Jews, but this is the, the, the self-definition uh, of the rabbis. Okay, so how do the Jews respond to this prohibition? What do they do? Uh, do I have a volunteer to read? However, not infiltrate through a total act of assimilation, it's infiltrate through means of at least visual assimilation, right? Because it doesn't say Rabbi Rufin. It doesn't say the you know the Roman community. The Roman community of Jews might have done a bunch of things. It might have picked up and left, right? They don't do that. They might have obeyed, right? The Roman government wants us to behave a certain way. That's what it means to be Roman. We'll behave. So instead, he takes on. The, the specific act of cuts his hair in the Roman fashion. Very notably, he has a, a Greek-sounding name, Rabbi Ruben, son of Istroboli, which is probably a Greek or a, or a Latin word. And he sits among them and tries to persuade them from the inside, a kind of Book of Esther type of move. He uses this kind of sophistry of what you... And, and he reveals something about the way the rabbis think about this particular decree. Is it that the... the which, is, which do the Romans really want? Do they want to assimilate the people, the Jewish people in, or do they want them actually destroyed? According to the rabbi's version, they want them actually destroyed. So they're willing to not persecute them because they, the Romans believe that their own systems will bring about their own destruction. Right? It's, it's a kind of, it's the notion of the other as totally and dramatically committed to your destruction. Right? And he, by being on the inside, having cut his hair in the Roman fashion, is able to convince them of the error of their ways. Right, and the cl one of the classic narratives that Jews often tell in classical sources about their enemies is that the, the, their hatred, the hatred that the enemies have towards us is not empirically valid, it's just, it's, it's rooted in their consciousness. Right, so the rabbis in other, ca other contexts connect Rome to Esau. Right, we're Jacob and they're Esau. Right? And that hatred, and then they describe about Esau, that Esau's hatred is fundamental. E Esau hates Jacob, and there's no way it can ever get around it. It's biblically problematic, because Esau and Jacob actually reconcile. Right? And that's something that the rabbis don't quite deal with. But they route the hatred of the Romans towards the Jews in such deep and profound ways that they're skeptical even of their own judgment with respect to what's the best way to bring about the Jews' destruction. Nevertheless, from a foreign policy standpoint, so step one was assimilate our way in and use our, our, use our wits and our wiles to get this thing thrown out, right? The best way in which to get rid of legislation we don't like is through lobbying, right? It's not through a, you know, it's, if we work through the inside of the system, we're capable of overturning the decree that's been cast against us. This doesn't work, and so the rabbis have to come up with another system. And the other system that the rabbis come up with is the Jews then conferred as to who should go to Rome for the annulment of the decree. I'm continuing on to now page 1 on the other side of page 12. Let Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai go, for he is experienced in miracles. Right? If option 1 is the manipulation of the system, option 2 is, and it's an inferior option, the reliance on miracles. Right? In theory, you could use Jewish theology to suggest that it should be the other way around. Because what do Jews do first when, they're when, they're in a when they reach a time of suffering or they think that something is about to happen, classically? They pray. Right? But in some ways, this text is aware of the realpolitik of what it means to be a diaspora Jew. That these two things are separate, praying and reliance on divine intervention and, and working within the system in order to achieve an outcome are separate and both necessary. And you have to kind of do both systems in order to bring about your results. We're going to contrast this to the notion of what sovereignty allows you to do. Right? If the diaspora system that's imagined by classical tradition involves these two systems, in theory, sovereignty has to challenge you to actually do something different, which is to be proactive in creating of the Jewish public sphere and the Jewish and, and, and the systems. Right? Rather than manipulate your way in the system, you have the responsibility of holding on to the integrity of the whole system which is, has its own, obviously, its own challenges. So how did this come about? And this is where the text really goes off the rails. 
Let Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai go for his experience in miracles. They have this little back and forth about Rabbi Elazar ben Rabbi Yossi going with him, which is, explains how it was that along the way they learned this whole thing about the blood of reptiles. In other words, the whole story is puts them in dialogue with one another, and if you have two Jews traveling from Jerusalem to Rome, at some point along the way, they will find themselves to the arcania of the blood of reptiles, or at least if they're rabbis. Okay. <clears throat> um, skip down to about the middle of the paragraph when it says, then Ben Tamalion. There's a little six in there. Okay, so now the rabbis are on this journey and they're heading to Rome. And they're trying to figure out what their strategy is going to be vis-a-vis uh, dealing with this problem. And they're accompanied by Ben Tamalion came to meet them. Ben Tamalion is a rabbinic demon. Demon. A demon comes to meet them along the way. This is how Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai is going to enact his miracle, is through the use of a demon. How so? First, Ben Tamalion comes to him and says, Is it your wish that I accompany you? He says, how can I be of service, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai? We'll unpack the bizarreness of this in a moment, but if you're not following, let me know, and I'll, I'll go on. Thereupon, Rabbi Shimon wept and said, the handmaiden of my ancestor's house was found worthy of meeting an angel three times, and I not even meet him once. And it's, I have to work with demons. My ancestors were surrounded by angels, right? This is surrounded, my ancestors were surrounded by angels, and I have to work via demons. Right? This is a classic Jewish self-narrative about the inferiority of us versus the merits of our ancestors. They had it figured out. Right? They were protected by the divine will. And we, woe to be us, have to use mechanisms and systems that we find so much more troubling. Right? But if I have to use a demon in order to exercise this problem, literally and figuratively, I will do so. So the demon now accompanies them. As Shimon Bar Yochai says, however, let the miracle be performed no matter how. Thereupon, he advanced and entered into the emperor's daughter. When Rabbi Shimon arrived there, he called out, Ben Tamayon, leave her. Ben Tamayon, leave her. As he proclaimed this, he left her. Okay, so what happens? I know, it's super weird. Right? So the demon, essentially, it seems that Rabbi Shimon and the demon make a deal, right? Where the demon goes and possesses the daughter of the emperor. I mean, I think that the sexual terminology here is not accidental, right? Um, the, the, the demon goes and possesses the emperor's daughter, and Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who, has made, who is in consort with the demon, goes into the house and performs the exorcism. The demon leaves, and in exchange for now, the emperor's daughter, having been saved by the Shimon Bar Yochai, she, he grants him the reward, I'll do whatever you'd like. Okay, and he goes on and says, request to them, request whatever you desire. And what do they do? They were led into the treasure house to take whatever they chose. They found that bill, that is the decree about those three things, and tore it to pieces. I'll stop here for a second. Right? So, in this moment, the, the manipulation of a, de- uh, of, by using a demon, right, and manipulating the daughter of the emperor, they're able to go into the treasure house, find the bill, of, the bill of decree and to tear it to pieces, and the Jews are saved. Right? So this is, a, I think, a mythic and metaphorical version of what it means to survive. Technique one was infiltrate the society and try to convince people of the merit of your ways. Technique two is to use supernatural means of doing the same thing, bringing about the same outcome. Have they achieved at any point in the story any sort of cultural advancement with respect to Rome? No. Right? In fact, you're creating, on an ongoing basis, a reliance on more and more absurd solutions to get out of these existential crises. Right? All they've done is solve this particular problem at this particular time. Now, I'm going to do this last sentence here in this text, which throws it into a really strange place. It was with reference to this visit, when Rabbi Elazar ben Yosei and Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai went to Rome, that Rabbi Elazar, son of Rabbi Yossi, says, in another source, I saw it in Rome, and there were on it several drops of blood. Now, what do you think the it refers to based on what we've seen so far? It would seem that it's the decree, right? So that it's covered in blood. Why? Something with the exorcism of the demon. I don't know. Circumcision is a bloody process. The menstrual women is a bloody... There's a lot of overlapping metaphors here. In other sources, this it refers to the temple curtain. Rabbi Lazar ben, the, the temple curtain, 
Rabbi Elazar ben Rabbi Yossi serves in the role in the rabbinic corpus as the one rabbi who traveled to Rome after the destruction of the temple and found there all of the relics of the Jerusalem temple, which classical sources tell us were on display in the Roman amphitheater for about 50 years after the destruction of the temple. This is independently corroborated. Right? And ra this is the one rabbinic narrative of a rabbi who went to Rome and says, I, you know, and, and he, comes, he pops up like Waldo in all sorts of places in the rabbinic discussion. So when they talk about the menorah, and they say the menorah looked like this. Now, they, none of them know what it looks like because they're living 150 years afterwards. And Rabbi Eliezer Ben Yossi pops up and says, actually, it looked like this because I saw it. And he appears in a number of different places to pop up and say this. And here he's popping up and saying it about the temple curtain. I saw the temple curtain in Rome, and it was covered in blood. Now, why would the temple curtain in Rome be covered in blood? You might remember from the Yom Kippur liturgy. Hmm? So it's interesting that you go there first. Like, if there's a destruction of the temple, when all the slaughtering of priests seems to be taking place, that there will be blood there. More likely, in the actual sacrificial processes of Yom Kippur, it describes in the liturgy at Yom Kippur, at the, at the part when the service goes dull, um, the high priest would slaughter the, the goat, and he would take the blood and sprinkle it. And he would not intend to reach the partition, that is the curtain, but if he sprinkled blood on the curtain, it wasn't the end of the world. And over the course of 50, 100 years of a curtain hanging there on Yom Kippur, the cur temple curtain is stained in blood. Now, the consequences of this story, and by the fact that the rabbis put it together, is that these rabbis go into the, the, the house of the emperor in Rome, and they have the choice of taking one of two things. They have the choice to take the decree and to tear it up, or to do what? Take the curtain. Right. I, mean, I think one of the things that's happening, I think, at the end of this text, I'm not even sure if it's deliberately or not, is it's pitting two things against each other. One is survival in the diaspora context, and one is restoration of the temple. Right? These two are being drawn in contrast to each other. Right? Given the opportunity in the house of the emperor to seek restoration or to seek survival, the rabbis choose survival, which maps very well onto the sequence of Jewish history where the rabbis build infrastructures by which Jews can survive in diaspora much more aggressively than they build a system of survival under sovereignty. And it maps very well into another very well-known rabbinic text of when Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai is, um, is taken out of Jerusalem during the conquest of Rome, right, right before Jerusalem gets destroyed. Is anyone familiar with this story? He gets carried out in a coffin, and he gets taken to the emperor. And through, again, a kind of manipulation, the emperor says to him, okay, I'll grant you three wishes. Right? You're okay. I'll grant you three wishes. Now remember, in this story, Jerusalem is still standing. He's been snuck out of Jerusalem before it burns. And so what should Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai say in that moment? If the emperor of Jerusalem, who, uh, the emperor of Rome is besieging Jerusalem and says to him, t says to Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, I'll give you three wishes. Save what should Jerusalem. wish number one be? Save Jerusalem. Save Jerusalem. And he says what? Anybody remember? All right, give me a beach house for me and my friends. Right? Give me a place out in, out in the wilderness for me and the other sages to go build rabbinic Judaism. His second wish is to ask for a doctor for his friend Rabbi Tzadok. And his third is to ask to save the line of the Gamaliel high, um, patriarchs. In other words... Beach house first? <laughs> <laughs> Beach house might be taking it a little too far. Say, give me Yavna and a place for my friends. And that becomes the core mythic narrative that underlies the creation of rabbinic Judaism, which is, while the temple is still standing, we're moving away from the temple to create an entirely different system that's predicated on knowledge and survival. And the rabbis are so scandalized by Rabbi Yochanan that they actually challenge him in that very text. And they say, he was standing there, why didn't he ask for Jerusalem? I mean, it seems so absurd in retrospect. If you're going to make up a story about survival, you, you have to account for that possibility. And they give the answer of the, the, the answer of pragmatism. He didn't because he knew that, that Jerusalem wouldn't actually be given. Right? So he asked for the low-hanging fruit of Yavna as opposed to Jerusalem. But the basic question, I think, is much stronger than the answer, which is, given the opportunity to salvage sovereignty, or given the opportunity to build something outside the premise of sovereignty, rabbinic tradition errs on the side of building something outside of it. 
and it creates this vacuum of what building towards sovereignty looks like. The rabbis become torn because they're in two places, right? As rabbinic Judaism emerges, there are rabbis in the land of Israel and there are rabbis in Babylonia, and those tensions are embedded in their text. But it would be very hard for us to swallow the notion also that we as the inheritance and right, we're the, we're the descendants of a rabbinic Jewish system, regardless of your denominational affiliation, you are a rabbinic Jew. To say that it is entirely embedded, like the whole system is designed around rabbinic authority so that we're subordinate to it, and that it comes at the cost of any sovereignty is really problematic. This is a fourth or fifth century version of the rabbis looking back and saying, this is how we imagine we came about. And by doing so, they channel both the legitimacy of having come out of the temple and the legitimacy of having left it. But as a, as a mythic narrative for us, it leaves us a little bit of a lurch. What does it say for those choice that, that to the extent that this is a choice between sovereignty and rabbinic Judaism, how do you imagine, and, and our tradition chooses rabbinic Judaism, how do we imagine as rabbinic Jews creating a vision for sovereignty? And for Israeli Jews, how do you imagine bringing the culture of rabbinic Judaism, which is a culture and value, uh, of values and meaning, into that sovereign picture? If the, if, the, if the system generates these as opposite or as poles, for which our survival depends on one or the other, how do you actually bring them into a more meaningful dialogue with one another? I don't think it's a stretch at all. I think that's actually exactly, it's exactly it. And it's not just a move from, um, from nationalism to, uh, to ethics and law and practice. It's also actually a move from the, the national to the local. Right? The rabbinic system is designed for local use. It struggles whenever it is projected on a national campus. And it's, or it's at least untested <laughs> of how it's projected on a national campus. Um, and the best example of this is the, the rabbinic innovation most connected to space and geography is the A-roof. An A-roof is a means by which a rabbinic community encloses its participants in order to be able to do things within the, con in order to turn public space into private space. If you read straight in the Bible, you would never be allowed to carry anything out of your house on Shabbat unless you are inside your house, right? You're allowed to carry things from one room to another. You're not allowed to move things from one domain to another. So how do the rabbis deal with this problem? They turn broad public space into private space. So if I hang chicken wire over the entire community of Teaneck, New Jersey, I can call it one domain, right? It's one of the most kind of theoretically absurd rabbinic innovations, and yet it becomes a hallmark characteristic of rabbinic Judaism, the transformation of the public space into the private space. But it has a double, it's a double-edged sword. When you turn public space into private space, you also, you also define your community based on the people who, with whom you identify in your community, right? Non-Jews who live within an Eruv are invisible. They have to be. By logic, they have to be, because otherwise you're saying that you live in the same house with non-Jews and you create all sorts of problems. So the Eruv system closes off our community to out, you know, closes off a community to outsiders and generates insiders. It has a double-edged effect. And it's an attempt to basically say, where do you not have to have an Eruv, incidentally? Where in the world do you not have to have an Eruv? Jerusalem. Right, I mean, Jerusalem, right? And Israel, I mean Israel. You don't need an Eruv here because in theory, the whole space is a different kind of private space. But it's a fantasy to the rabbis. So the whole Eruv system is designed around the experiment of space out in, the, in, the, in a world that's not here. That's, that's, on that, that's on the curriculum, right? That has to be a question that you ask. If you're gonna apply this system that's actually designed to not take place here, how does it take place here that retains an integrity for the system. And if it's not replaced here, what's the value-based system that comes out of Jewish tradition that's meant to replace it? it right, if this is the legacy of our tradition, what do we, how does this interface with the current, with, with the current reality? Let me do another rabbinic source with you to make this even worse. Um, on the previous pages eight and nine, right, of uh, track take two boats. Yeah, go ahead, Marshall. Can you give us the time frame of when these rabbinic texts were written? Rabbinic texts emerge in written form somewhere between the 3rd and 7th century, uh, both in the land of Israel and in Babylonia. Some rabbinic texts include things that were older traditions that they inherited, but as written form, all of it comes after the destruction of the temple in a period of not sovereignty. 
Um, and the most, the, the most flourishing of rabbinic sources takes place in Babylonia in the 7th, 8th, and 9th century when Jews are actually in a very good political position in Babylonia. Jewish life in Babylonia was excellent, um, but they're not, but by no means sovereign. That's the time of the flourishing of the rabbis. In exile. In exile. Well, in exile or possibly in diaspora. And the terms are different, right? And I want to just, it's, it's actually a worthwhile piece there. These are very different terms, and they're loaded. Exile means forcibly being pushed out from where you live. Diaspora, a Greek word that's invented while there is sovereignty in the land of Israel, is a term that describes, it's, the best analogy is to like spores or seeds and plantings. It's actually, in theory, a positive term, right? You scatter, you know, the, the scattering seeds can be an act of violence, right? And that's, that's a parable in the Gospels that Jesus says, you know, it's like if you don't have, if you don't, if you don't believe in Christ, then sprinkling the seeds is like sprinkling them on rocks. They don't grow, right? Whereas in theory, as a positive message, if you said diaspora communities are a sprinkling of seeds everywhere, you're enabling the world to flourish in a much more profound way than if you sprinkle them all in one place. Okay, did everybody follow this arcane rules? <laughs> right? Essentially, they, there's a problem, right? If the Jewish world is divided between places outside the land of Israel and places within the land of Israel, what happens if a person goes from place X to place Y without a fixed currency with, on the basis of a contract? That's the kind of legal frame. I have a contract in one place. The currency is different in another place. Which is, is my presence in the land of Israel more significant than... My, the person I'm divorcing who's in, who's in Cappadocia. Which of these triumphs? According to the original rabbinic position, the currency of the land of Israel triumphs over the currency of Cappadocia. Why? What are the theoretical reasons why? Any guesses? I know, it's a little dry. Well, I mean, but why? Why would the currency of the land of Israel be the metric that they use here. Right. One is an ideological preference. We'd rather you be here, and therefore we're going to incentivize it financially for you to be here. The alternative is it's a kind of normalization of, you know, you need one standard of practice, and if we're going to choose between a standard of practice here and a standard of practice there, we'll choose the standard of practice here. Okay? And Rabbi Shimon's disagreement is either ideological or technical. Does he disagree that Eretz Israel should have greater precedence than Cappadocia, or does he merely believe that it can be negotiated? Right? Incidentally, the use of this word Cappadocia, anyone actually been to Cappadocia? Mm -hmm. Right? So we've had one person go to It's actually a real place. There were Jews in Cappadocia throughout the ancient period. In this text, it's probably meant to be anywhere else. Literally, Yenemsvelt, right? And in fact, because the rabbinic word that's used to describe Cappadocia sounds like Yenemsvelt, it's Kaputkia, right? It's literally nowhere's land, right? So they come up with a term. If you said Rome, it's too loaded, right? If you said Alexandria, it's too local. This is faraway place. This is like, you know, I don't know, Milwaukee, right? This is the faraway place that where, you know, it's not, you know, and I, I, I want to just, I think it's meaningful to say it's something like Milwaukee. If you said New York, right, if you, if you identified another Jewish metropolis, you would, bring the, the, you would bring the contrast between these two places into relief. This is saying Eretz Israel and other. Okay? So now the rabbis, in expounding on this, um, go a little deeper. Um, our rabbis taught, we're on the middle of, page of, the, of, the, of the opposing page, our rabbis taught on page 9 in the middle of the second column. One should, so, you know, putting on, there are four possible scenarios on this box, right? Living in the land of Israel with other Jews is, in theory, the ideal scenario that's not described in this text. The obviously inferior scenario that's not described in this text is living outside the land of Israel with all Gentiles. So the question is, the middle two scenarios, living in the land of Israel but being surrounded by Gentiles, or living in the diaspora being surrounded by Jews, in theory, we would say that's the current, right? You know, one could imagine that as the current test, right? And maybe they they mesh. And this text takes a very avowedly Zionist stance and said better to live in the land, in vertical relationship to the divine, than to live outside the land in horizontal relationship to other people. Yeah. This is the Babylonian Talmud citing, right? And they're that's why they're going to. Uh, undermine this text. So this is part of the textual heritage that they receive 
and they don't know what to do with them. Like I would suspect people in this room, right? Most, if for diaspora Jewry, the premise of diaspora Jewry is horizontal. It's I will live with other Jews, and as a result, we will bring divinity into our midst. And this text prioritizes the verticality of living in the land of Israel. It doesn't matter who's around me, who am, who's affecting me, right? But because I'm in relationship with the divine. And it quotes a verse that links very problematically these two things. To live in the land of Israel, I, you know, uh, what, is the, what does the verse say? I'll, to, give you the, uh, to give you the land of Canaan to be your God. This text is reading that very specifically to say, if you live in the land of Canaan, I will be your God. Shaking your head. Yeah, it's amazing. It's an amazing text. Um, <clears throat> the first question that the rabbis lob at this text is as follows. Has he then who does not live in the land no God? Right? Is it an absolute scenario that not living in the land of Israel means that you actually don't have God? The text is very uncomfortable with that possible outcome. And here's where the Babylonian voice starts to emerge in this text. Um, this is what the text intended to tell you. Whoever lives outside the land of Israel may be regarded as one who worships idols. It's not that you don't have a god. It's that you have god. Like, I, well, idol worship is not the absence of god. It's just disobedience. Right, so step one in trying to understand this is to say it's not that you actually don't have god. It's that you're just disobedient to god. So Rabbi Zera, go on to the bottom paragraph. Right, this is the straw man that they set up. And very quickly they undermine their own straw man and they tell a story. Rabbi Zerah was evading Rabbi Yehuda because he, Rabbi Zerah, desired to go up to the land of Israel while Rabbi Judah had said the following, whoever goes up from Babylon to the land of Israel transgresses the Torah, a positive commandment as it says in scripture. They shall be carried to Babylon and there they shall be until the day I remember them, saith the Lord. In other words, what? What was Rabbi Yehuda trying to promote? You're forbidden to go to the land of Israel. It's a total undermining and rejection of the previous teaching by a Babylonian Jew. He says, it's not, forget about this whole notion that there's no God there. We're actually obligated to stay here. So the polar opposite to this view is not a propping up of sovereignty. It's actually just a propping up of where diaspora Jews live. This text then goes on to talk about the covenantal relationship that Jews have to diaspora. That by God putting us in diaspora, God created a covenant with us that we're obligated to stay there until we are brought back. As a result, this text is a political text used, this is the anchoring text for the Naturae Karta movement that, um, that is of the anti-Zionist ultra-Orthodox community that's rooted both here in Jerusalem, literally Naturae Karta means the guardians of the gate, they feel that they are the guardians of Jerusalem from the Zionist heathens who are attempting to violate the divine commandment, as well as anti-Zionist ultra-Orthodox Jewry in America. This became a political flag. This notion of three covenantal oaths that diaspora Jewry took implicitly with God as a part of the exilic process. And the covenantal oaths that they took were that the Jewish people were not, Israel should not go up to Israel as if in a wall, as if all together, and they claimed that the Zionists violated that with their mass immigrations to Israel. Second, hmm? second, that the Holy One adjured Israel that they not, they not rebel against the nations of the world. And third, and this is the one that, this is exactly where the sticky point is between Zionists who want to use this text and anti-Zionists who want to use this text get stuck on, that God made the nations of the world promise that they wouldn't oppress the Israelites too much. So if you want to own this text as a Zionist, you've got to hang your hat on three. <laughs> because you say, they broke the oaths, the nations of the world violated the oaths, therefore we're now off the hook. If you are the anti-Zionists, you have to interpret number three as, who are we to decide what, opp what oppression is too much? This is where, in the religious Zionist community, that discourse takes place, right? To what extent has God violated God's promise and, uh, and created an opening for Zionism? And to what extent are we not permitted to make that evaluation? Look, I'll just tell you, I'll, the, whole, the, whole, right, the whole sphere of interpretation by anyone who's going to interpret a text 
involves a careful balancing between the integrity of the text and a fidelity to it and the ideas that you have and want to propagate to the world. Right? So, and there are varying degrees to which we prioritize one or the other, and there are various degrees of intellectual honesty and integrity that we bring to that process. Right? So we like to think that we are both faithful to the text and faithful to our own ideas, and that we're finding ways to make them collaborate. You would like to see anti-Zionist rabbis read this text in a way that accords with a different outcome for the world. The text goes on to, in, throughout this, this Gemara, and you have it here with you, so you could take it with you, to dance this question back and forth again. Living in the land of Israel, and then the rabbis say, actually living in Babylonia, it's equivalent to living in the land of Israel, right? That it's the better diaspora versus the worst diaspora. And the rabbis find themselves on this dance between the notion that there is an ideal place where Jews are supposed to be living and the reality of where they are living. And do we make the current place where we live into an ideal reality? or into a default, right? Is diaspora meant to be somehow the prioritized place, or is it just the place we happen to be living and ultimately are supposed to be brought back to the land of Israel? With respect to this text, it goes to the question of whether you do it as a mass immigration, right? There, have been, there certainly have been ultra-Orthodox anti-Zionist Jews living in Israel from well before the times of mass immigrations. And what it does is it, it actually places the entire issue on the question of sovereignty. It's not about, the, there's nothing forbidden about living in the, land, in the land of Israel, right? And trying to observe the, the rabbinic laws that pertain to the land, right? R certainly enough in rabbinic Judaism that speaks to the particulars of what one does with respect to the land of Israel. It's just that there's very little in rabbinic Judaism that speaks to the process of sovereignty that's built around those mitzvot. That of what happens when it becomes not just the work of a private sphere and the private domain, but as exercised in the public space. So there's a sense of, we live in land of Israel, we are not subordinate to its Zionist government. It's better to be ruled by Rome. Better to be ruled by Rome. Right, in the most extreme form, right, in the most extreme form of these anti-Zionist communities, and there's, there was this guy, right, he's one of the, he's one of the advisors to, to um, Abu Mazen. Palestinian leadership has ultra-Orthodox advisors. And, they're, they're, and, and the most extreme formulation of this view says we would rather be inhabitants of a Palestinian state than of a Zionist state. Like because, we are, because, because it makes Judaism in Israel into its ultimate diaspora rabbinic frame. Right. It's Jews living in the land of Israel, but um, with a government that's not actually of Israel until God brings about a restoration that brings about the destruction of the mosque and replacing it with the temple and it becomes the ideal messianic state. And the problem is for, for mainstream Jews, the resistance to that ultra-Orthodox position doesn't want us, doesn't, for me at least, it doesn't want me to claim the messianic position. Right? I'm not trying to reject that in order to make the claim of that this is the messianic vision. Like how do you hold on to a kind of a middle ground between that view and the messianic view? One, you know, one stance, the in, one intermediate messianic stance in Jewish thought is a, position, a stance articulated by Rabbi Soloveitchik, rather famously in the 1960s, which is, came out an essay called Kol Dodi Dofeik, The Voice of My Beloved Nakath. Soloveitchik uh, <coughs> pivoted on the Book of the Song of Songs, which essentially describes a loving relationship between two lovers that ultimately in the book is, goes completely unconsummated. Right? One lover is seeking the other and can't find the lover, the other one comes back, and, and the key crux of the story is that, I don't remember if it's the he or the she, knocks on the door, and the beloved is in bed, and hears the knock, but doesn't stir to get up and answer the door. And knocks and knocks and knocks. And finally, by the time he goes to answer the door, the beloved is gone. Right? So the, the metaphor that has been conventionally interpreted of the Song of Songs is God knocking at the door, uh, God knocking at the door of the Israelites and the unwillingness or the inability to motivate to actually answer the door. Soloveitchik takes this um, as a metaphor for the re-entry of God into history with the, rise of the, modern, with the Holocaust and the rise of the modern state of Israel that by God re-entering re into history with 1948 and 1967 and all the events of the world, 
those are the knocks of God at the door of the Israelites, and it is incumbent upon the Israelites to answer the door. You have been listening to Dr. Yehuda Kurtzer, president of the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. You can hear more from Yehuda and other Institute scholars by subscribing to this podcast. For information about the Hartman Institute and our courses in North America and Israel, go to hartman.org.il. The Hartman Institute podcast is produced by Tony Jason. Music by Kevin McLeod. I'm Alan Abbey. Thank you for listening, and we will see you again next time.